Welcome, welcome, Housers, to another episode of On the Way Home. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I am. I'm, I'm telling you, I nerd out about this stuff all the time uh, when we have different guests on. I'm just always learning, learning, learning. And there's so many brilliant people uh, in this sector uh, across uh, our country and around the world that come on to this podcast and are so generous with their time. Today's guest is very special. Uh, you'll find out about him in just a few minutes. Um, before we do that, my name again is Michael Braithwaite, and I am from the organization called Blue Door, an organization just north of the GTA operating in York and Peel and Durham, uh, helping our most vulnerable across that. And we've been doing that for 41 years, do all sorts of innovative and cool things uh, that are trying to turn the tide uh, around homelessness, preventing it, ending it. We do affordable housing programs. We're all, all sorts of different natures. We do a very cool social enterprise, construction social enterprise called Construct uh, across uh, Durham, Peel, and York, and uh, trying to take it across the country. For more information on Blue Door, check us out at bluedoor.ca. And, you know, just a quick shout out to the over 100 people that really do the heavy lifting at Blue Door that are and our local heroes doing great work, saving lives every day. We do this in partnership with the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. By the time you hear this podcast, they will have been celebrating uh, their conference in Halifax, a wonderful conference they do every fall uh, with the best of the brightest from around the world, bringing people together, sharing knowledge, dropping knowledge. That's incredible. And they will have announced where the next conference will be. So looking forward uh, to that for the fall of 2024. Um, and they do great work beyond the conference. There's lots of stuff that they do around advocacy and training. Check out their website at caeh.ca to see all the wonderful things they're doing and how you can get involved. Let's get to today's guest. This has been a long time coming. I've been uh, chasing after this guest for a long time. He's really, really busy. Uh, not only is he teaching at two different universities, Carleton and McMaster, and doing his own consulting work, but hugely in demand uh, when government goes to make policy changes, brought up uh, with, with the Senate and, and with different committees around what they should do, whether it be finance or housing, uh, moving forward was influential in putting together uh, the Housing Accelerator Fund. And I tell the story in this that I was actually asked to uh, for that committee to appear. Um, and I appeared after Steve, which Steve Pomeroy is our guest today, if you haven't guessed already. I mean, this man is he's just brilliant brilliant and today it was worth the wait the podcast we go over how the heck did we get to where we're at and he's doing this he's been doing this work uh for over 40 years so he's really seen a variety of different things happening he was there when we had a very similar situation to what we have now in the early 80s when we had high inflation high interest rates really high interest rates of around over 20 percent uh that affected housing uh, he's been doing this work for so long. He's worked with some of the legends in the game, Michael Shapcott, uh, you know, Kathy Crow, of course. He talks about some of that, how he got into it, his past. But we talk about some of the, the factors that are really making this happen, about uh, the massive uh, influx of international students uh, who have come in and affected the housing piece of things uh, that we weren't prepared for and that we didn't prepare for. Uh, and, and we talk about the, how uh, covid affected a lot of different things. And most importantly, we talk about what has to happen moving forward. And if you get a focus on that, Steve has some great thoughts around how we can uh, curb the trend or the direction we're going in now. 
uh, and move towards ending homelessness across Canada. He's doing some great work around that. Um, and I hope that the government is all ears when that happens. We talk about his hopes uh, for hopefully the fall economic statement that will come out uh, where they, they promise some new dollars or some new uh, thoughts around uh, moving forward with the new housing minister. It is a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Steve as much as I did. It was worth the wait. Let's go to that conversation now. See, this podcast works for probably almost a year. You are a, a man high in demand. And I got to tell you a little story before I get into the questions that uh, I forget what it was. Um, I was called before a, a committee. Uh, with, with senators and, and uh, MPs, and they were talking about, I think it was for the Housing Accelerator before it came out. And they said, you know, can you come and give five minutes? So they're very strict five minutes. And I got there and it was online and you were there in person and you did five minutes. And all I wanted to say after that was just do what he said. They're, they're, <laughs> I'll save you four and a half minutes. Just do that and, and we'll be all set. Uh, you are a tough act to follow. It's so glad to uh, have you here today on the podcast. Nice to be here, Michael. I actually had the same experience yesterday. I was invited to speak at the um, Standing Committee of Finance on the the causes of of home price uh, escalation and rent escalation. So similarly, the same five minute kind of thing yesterday. (laughs) Well, they are lucky to have you and and for you to take the time and give them an sage advice always. I mean, I think what I got out of uh, a lot of what you were saying, it wasn't just it wasn't complaints. It was, here's some action steps that, that you could take. Uh, right. So I appreciate that. I'm sure they do too. Steve, we asked the standard question to everyone who comes on the show because uh, it's more of a personal question, I think. And that is, what does home mean to you? Yeah, I think it's it's basically, um, you know, it's, it's where we live our lives. And uh, we, we, you know, we, we grow, we develop, we raise families, uh, those types of things. So it's, it's something that you touch, feel, and have, and have strong attachments to. Um, and it's very much part of our lives. Very good. Very succinct. And there, yeah, absolutely. Everything starts and ends, I think, at home. Um, in case someone has been living under a rock and doesn't know you, Steve Pomeroy, <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about your journey into this work? How the heck did you end up uh, in this line of work, in this sector. We often say that, you know, in that grade two, when people came into work, uh, parents, and, and they said, talk about careers, no one really chose housing or research uh, as, as what they were going to be when they, they grew up. How did you get into this work? Yeah, you know, a two-year-old policy wonk. Yeah, sure. Um, I think you know, it's, it's like most things in life. You know, you're going along doing things and then so, somehow that someone throws out a tripwire and you trip over it and you land in it. Uh, and for me, this was really as an undergraduate in urban geography at UBC back in the 70s. Uh, we had a third year course, sort of a, a, um, uh, the theme kind of changed each year. And that year, the prof just happened to choose to, to use the theme of housing. And uh, that, that's what kind of hooked me. I kind of uh, thought this was really interesting, got, got interested in it, did a couple of undergrad research papers. And, um, and this was sort of, you know, mid well late night late 70s um just as we were getting into periods of very high inflation and interest rates were really high and that kind of stuff so i started sort of researching um um uh, innovative financial instruments and all that kind of stuff and and uh ended up going off to uh i, w- I worked for a couple of years as a planner with the city of north van mainly because the director of the planning school said uh we'd love to have you as a student but don't apply next year you're right out of undergrad we we like mature students that have got a bit of experience so i went and worked as a planner for a couple of years 
Um, and one of the things I le learned actually working as a planner or a planning technician really um, was um, if you're going to actually be a good planner, you have to understand how development works. And that kind of when I went back to grad school and planning school, I did all of my electives in urban land economics. So sort of started to understand how to do performance, how, to, how finance works, that kind of stuff, which is not really a, a skill set that a lot of planners have. Um, but it's it set me off quite well in terms of a, a broader set of skills uh, than a lot of other folks that sort of work in, in, the, in, the, in the housing area. Um, so I um, ended up doing my graduate thesis, sort of looking at, at the time, uh, um, the federal programs. Uh, there was a review of, of social programs going on where they said, well, these programs are really expensive. We need to cut them um, and or at least reduce the expenditures. Uh, and because I was looking at these innovative mortgage products, I, I sort of figured out a way to use innovative financing to reduce government expenditures on housing and then wrote a thesis around that. Um, and then that kind of was the beginning of my, uh, my housing research career um, and ended up getting hired by CMHC to go work in research and policy and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was where it started. 40 um, years ago. <laughs> so, so, but and I think about, you're talking about the late 70s, early 80s. And I, I can remember that period of high interest rates. I could remember we yeah. actually uh, lost a house, my parents, yeah. and had to yeah. go because it was 22% interest yeah. Um, yeah. on the mortgage, right? So we had to kind of downgrade. We were lucky enough to right. still be housed. Yes. Uh, but but I remember as a kid not quite understanding the economics of it, not being too happy with uh, losing our, our house with a pool and going to a older neighborhood with a smaller house that my parents yeah. were actually just trying to survive. But it's funny when you mention that you must feel sometimes like you're in a, a version of groundhog day. Uh, yes. Where, did, did you all over again. Yeah. <laughs> right. With high interest rates, inflation, yes. uh, everything up. And you've been at this, how have things, you know, when you look back and a lot of people, a lot of researchers will talk about the fact that homelessness, while it's always been around in one shape or form, has really escalated through uh, yeah. policy changes uh, in the, the late 80s, early 90s. What changes have you seen? How the heck do we get into the situation we find ourselves now? Yeah, well, I mean, that, I mean, that sort of 40 years of, of, of evolving change, um, I think, in, in, you know, initially that period of the, uh, of the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when we did have that high inflation, high mortgage rates, it really did suppress people's capacity to access ownership. Um, it um, you know, prices stepped, stayed reasonable. Uh, you know, a couple of years out of grad school, I was able to buy a house in Vancouver. Prices were so cheap back then, relatively speaking. Um, and so, you know, we we then went through a period as well where. Uh, you know, at the time in the 1980s, we still had pretty um, significant uh, federal funding uh, for social housing, affordable housing programs, uh, which uh, unfortunately, the nature of subsidies at the time was one again, because it was linked to providing a subsidy against 100% borrowing against the cost of building, uh, that those subsidies were big, and they got much bigger at high interest rates. And that's really what stimulated the federal government, uh, particularly the Department of Finance, uh, not to like uh, the housing programs, and they sort of tried to nibble away at them for five or six years there in the late um, uh, late eighties, early nineties, and eventually, you know, terminated all federal funding for social housing. And that was a huge watershed moment, I think, for the the affordable housing sector. 
um, that so it basically just killed killed the sector, it killed development. Um, and uh, I think you know, we, we went into a period there of sort of a void for essentially eight years of, of no federal activity. A couple of provinces, BC and Quebec, continued to do a little bit of stuff, but most of the rest of the country didn't. And that's certainly, as, as you alluded to, Michael, the period when we started to identify these issues of rising homelessness, increasing issues of affordability. And there was a very large sort of, um, sort of advocacy campaign, mainly centered out of Toronto, guys like Michael Shapcott, David Olchansky, uh, Kathy... Um, uh, Kathy, I can't remember the healthcare nurse whose name it kind of escaped me for now. Um, Kathy Crow. Kathy Crow, exactly. Yes, I mean, and and they were very, very uh, good in sort of framing up, you know, a lot of advocacy around this issue, and that we needed to get the federal government back into the game again. Um, and I think, you know, partly because of their advocacy and the community sector advocacy generally, um, and advocacy from the Federation of Municip Canadian Municipalities. Uh, which at the time Jack Layton was uh, was president. Uh, he was still a councillor in Toronto at that time, uh, and really did up the game for FCM to and all the mayors across the country to lobby for this. And we did see the federal re-engagement in um, in uh, two thousand and one with the affordable health. Well, initially with the, the homeless initiative in in ninety nine, and subsequently with the uh, the uh, the affordable housing framework in two thousand and one, two thousand and two, uh, and sort of a modest re-entry of the federal government. But it was very low. You know, we were doing probably four to five thousand units nationally from two thousand and one to two thousand nineteen, compared to the twenty five thirty thousand that we had done back in the in the peak days of the 80s so i think that really you know, we have diminished the role of the non-market sector uh, the community sector um and i think the consequence of that in a period of evolving neoliberalism and greater reliance on the market um you know the market has taken over and i think it's those market forces that uh, have, have got us to the situation we're in now essentially a whole bunch of greed um, and people are making a pile of money on real estate and converting. We, you started asking the question, what do you think is a home? Uh, and the difference, I think, is is between a home as a house or a house as a home where, where you raise a family and, and live versus a, a house as an investment. And I think that's been the big change we've seen in this sort of you know, couple of three decades since then, uh, increasingly commodification of housing. Um, and the consequence of that is that uh, it's traded as a commodity and it's no longer affordable as a home anymore. Yeah, uh, agreed too. And, and just so, so people understand, we're not talking about someone who might own an extra home. We're talking about, I think it's uh, Blackstone or others, who these, these conglomerates that, that own hundreds of thousands of homes really around the world, and many of which sit empty, right? It's really, the, it's about the land or the real estate, not so much uh, the people in it. And it, you're, you're right, it's about, it's become about dollars. Um, and it's, and it's, even, I mean, it's, not, it's not just the big corporations. I mean, individuals are, are behaving this way as well. And you go to the dinner parties and people talk about how much the house is worth and how much money they've made. And, and you know, last year, 31% of, of home purchases were from investors. Uh, so people saw, geez, I can make a lot more money buying, buying housing than I can um, you know, putting my money in the stock market. So I mean, that's what I really mean about this sort of the, the very broad um, uh, in commodification of housing, that it, we're seeing it really at all levels of society, both on the corporate side and on the yeah. individual side. Yeah, that commodification for sure. So, so we've—it's good to understand how we've got here. And even in 2017, when the national strategy was, I, I don't think we could have foresaw, or maybe we, maybe you did, but that it would get this bad so quick. Uh, even with the introduction of that, of you know, where we weren't, we didn't have a strategy, and the feds were, were mostly were out. Is it the pandemic that really has escalated this, do you think? Did it play a part? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously no one saw that coming. And I mean, it, it, the pandemic, you know, it created a whole bunch of reactions from government, one of which, of course, was a, a real, real concern about how is this going to impact the economy? We've got all these people can't work. They're all staying home. Um, and and what, what's going to happen there? And, and, and to sort of manage uh, the economy, uh, the government in, in collaboration with the Bank of Canada and monetary policy um, you know, drove interest rates very, very low. Uh, not really thinking that this would have a major impact on housing markets. And it was really that extremely cheap money uh, at a time when people weren't, you know, you, you couldn't travel, you couldn't spend any money on vacations. Um, you know, you basically, we ended up saving a lot more money. So all of a sudden people had a lot more savings than they had very access to cheap money through financing. And we saw this massive increase in home prices, you know, 20% a year pretty well in, in 2020, 2021, uh, to a 40% uh, growth in total. Um, and that really reinforced this, this commodification uh, and, and people's desire to go out and buy investment properties because they had nothing else to do either you know, some renovated their own houses but a lot of them bought, bought additional ones uh, and think great i can buy this and i can basically make 20 percent a year on this and uh alongside that of course we had um uh you know st we started to see the increase in rents um which sort of happened a little bit later i mean obviously in 2020 when we had we closed the borders and we didn't have any immigrants coming in we didn't have as much pressure on rentals and for a while, we sort of a little bit of a stalling of, of rents, uh, but as soon as we opened the borders up again, um, and the the flood of uh, folks who hadn't been able to come in the previous year, um, and and one one of the sort of the unmanaged parts of the the population growth and immigration system uh, were temporary foreign workers and particularly international students, which we now know uh, that you know while we had explicit targets for um, um, new permanent residents, which was around about four hundred and 30, I think 440, uh, going up to 550, 500, 550 by 2025, that's only 100,000 more people, you know, on the new permanent immigrant side. Um, and in many cases, uh, many of those new permanent residents were um, folks who had originally come here as temporary foreign workers or as, um, as students. So we had no net growth as a result of, of, of permanent residency because the folks were already here. But the growth on the student side, and the and which is much less managed in the way that the the uh, new the uh, permanent resident uh, class is managed in terms of refugees, what kind of employment classes do we need, family reunification classes, that kind of stuff. Um, it was pretty well an open system of you know, if you, uh, institutions or students could apply through institutions for study permits. And lo and behold, next thing we know, there's 900,000 students coming into the country um, that had a massive impact on rental markets and alongside which was the fact that um, for four or five years at least or maybe even a decade we'd had this real constraint on access to home ownership for young families um, we, our home ownership rate in this country peaked in um, in 2011 69 percent um, and went down to 66 and a half percent by uh, 2021 if the if the home ownership rate had stayed at 69 percent uh, that would have been 400,000 uh, households, not people, but households, uh, that would have become owners and it would have freed up 400,000 rental units, which is like building 40,000 rental units a year. Well, we didn't do that. So there's an extra 40,000 units or 400,000 uh, wannabe owners still clogging up the rental market, not creating vacancies. On top of that, we bring in almost a million people um, through um, uh, foreign workers and temporary foreign workers and students. That's you know one one point three one point four million 
uh, in a uh, housing system that only has 4.5 4 million uh, rental units. So there was massive pressure on rental markets. Um, and we, we, we didn't really realize what was going on because for a long time we've relied on CMHC data from the rental, annual rental survey, uh, which surveys and tells us what the rents are. But the CMHC survey, so it looks at you know what are the rents of all the rental units that are out there. So 80% more or less of the units where people stay and they don't move, their rents are only going up at the rent guideline. Uh, the other 20% of the units where there's turnover, those rents were going up much, much higher. But when you average the two things out, you were seeing rent increases of, you know, four or five percent, which was still double the rate of inflation. But it wasn't as dramatic as when we started seeing data being published by rentals.ca, who are now starting to actually track transactional data of new rent tenancies. Uh, and when we saw those rents and we saw rents going up 15, 18, 20 percent in many, many cities, double digit rent increases, we really did realize, geez, we've got a serious problem of renter affordability. You know, a, a moderate low income household that, you know, for some reason has to move, whether it's family separation, whether it's change of job, whether it's some other reason. Um, you know, there's two things that happen. The unit, if they've been living in that unit for 10 years and the rents have been reasonable because of, of the annual rent control, all of a sudden that unit is maybe going from, from 900 to 1700, 1800. And then the unit they're, they're trying to find is already sitting there at 1800, 2000. So we've got a double whammy there, really. Um, uh, so I think that really is what is causing a pretty serious problem here of rental affordability. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's such a great explanation. I mean, it's interesting too. I think um, for a lot of these post-secondary institutes, they, they would claim the draw really to bring in a lot of these students yeah. Are the dollars, and they would say they, they've been cut back on the provincial side. Right. So they're trying to make up for that, reaching out to foreign students, bringing them in. Uh, so it's it's a, a complex situation for sure. Um, yeah, not- and part of that, you know, is we don't, you know, instead of we, we've got these this siloed sort of aspects of government, and you know, the housing department's responsible for housing. They're not responsible for immigration. The immigration department is not responsible for housing. And if they're not talking to each other, that's what happens. And I think you know, Duncan McLennan's done a lot of work in this area of the need for much more integrative policy development across government departments. And you know, what's happening? What are the consequences in health? What are the consequences for the economy generally? And I think we do need to start thinking of, of housing as part of a much bigger system. Uh, which interacts extensively, and we need to understand what those interactions are. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Absolutely, and I think we've seen a little bit of that with with some cabinet shuffles that they're they're seeing the the overlap a little bit. Um, and I think even with the national housing strategy, when they put out the the big number, that was not from one that was spread across some different uh, uh, different areas, so, so it's hopeful. So what, what are some, if, when government does come to you, as they often, often do, as we've discussed, what are some quick wins or some paths forward that we absolutely have to take if we're going to change uh, the direction we're headed now? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not convinced that government has it right and they're actually going to get the right changes there. I, I mean, I think what we've, we, the discourse we've, we've been seeing over the last year or so couple of years has very much been this fixation 
um, on, an, on, an, on a sort of a, a diagnosis or, or a bad diagnosis that the reason that home prices went up so much was because of lack of supply. And, and I think, as I just indicated, it was really because of the, the cheap money and, and, and the capacity to demand, which actually drove those prices up. So they've, they've diagnosed it incorrectly. And having done, I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying we don't need new supply. We certainly need new supply as we have this, this increase in the population. But as the cause of the affordability problem, I think they're, 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 they've missed the mark. And because they've missed the mark and they've diagnosed it that way, their solution is let's just stimulate a whole bunch of more supply which is great, we need it. Uh, and if we, if we flood the market with excess supply, sure, that will, will potentially drive down prices. But new supply takes three or four years to actually get a door finished and someone living behind it. That's three or four more years of pain uh, that a lot of people that are stressed are gonna have to deal with. And I think we need to, in the same way that um, if everybody across the country at all political levels are describing this as a housing crisis. If it's a crisis, if it's an emergency, you need immediate action. When we have forest fires, we don't tell the far, the firefighters, "Oh, wait, come come here, come in the ne next year." Uh, you know, you, you don't need to come right away. Uh, you, you know, we do. We get those firefighters on the line the next day, and we start fighting the fire. In the housing situation, we have the Housing Accelerator Fund announced initially in the fall of 2021 and, and, and announced in the budget of 2022. And a year and a half later, here we are finally implementing it. And because it's supply focused, it's going to be another three years before we have any action coming out of that. So. Yeah, in, in the long run, it's, it's, it's the correct policy, but we need to augment it and complement it with shorter term measures as well. And so, so on the ownership side, um, you alluded to losing your home uh, as a young person. And I think we're going to see a whole bunch more of that kind of happening in the next little while as mortgage renewals kick, out, kick in and folks that had mortgages five years ago at much lower rates are going to face very serious increase in their in their mortgage payments and, and some of them will in fact lose their homes and i think in the kind of regulations that we have from the federal regulatory agencies right now are not really managing that process well they're not creating more flexible forbearance in the system uh, they're requiring for example when folks have uh, extended their amortization period to manage their payments better so they can keep their home when they get to the end of the term and it rolls over to force them to go back to the original amortization which is going to massively increase their payments and cause them to lose their home um, you know the government back to this point of a home versus an investment. If government wants people to, to keep their homes, then we need to design policies to allow them to do that, which means looking at longer amortization periods, for example. Some would argue that that means people are going to spend more on in interest and take longer to pay off the mortgage. Yes, they will, but that's a lot better than being out on the street without a home. So we, you know, we have to make those kind of trade-offs. So on the home ownership side, I think we do need to think about policies that help people keep their homes and, and, and make those kind of adjustments. And then on the, the rental side, uh, that we're seeing these massive increases in rents. Um, and I think we do need to take a look at rent regulation, uh, obviously a provincial jurisdiction, not a federal one. Um, but uh, you know, I, for a long time, I was a proponent of, uh, Vacancy uh, or um, uh, rent regulation for sitting tenants and vacancy decontrol is okay because there's no one in the unit. It's fine if the rent goes up. Um, th that's not really a serious problem. And it makes sure we've got a balanced system where there are incentives for developers to invest and build new rentals. I've changed my mind on this in the last few years. Uh, you know, I think you know, now we have to think about that a bit. We're seeing 20% increases in rents. That's just un un unacceptable. 
And I think we do need to revisit the question of vacancy decontrol. Um, and certainly while the industry will argue, if you, if you regulate us, we'll stop building and we'll be worse off. I think that's an idle threat. Um, I think you know, in the past, when we have seen it both in BC and 83, when they, um, when they removed rent controls at the urging of industry and said, if you, remove, if you deregulate, we will build. In Ontario in 1998, with the so-called Tenant Protection Act, uh, which really wasn't a Tenant Protection Act at all, um, the, the same thing, the industry argued, uh, you know, deregulate and we will build. And in neither case did we see any significant increase in rental construction. So when we've deregulated on the basis they promised to build and they didn't, is the inverse true? If we actually regulate now, will they stop building? I, you know, there are other, there are many, many reasons other than regulation, and we're seeing that now. The stalling of development for economic reasons, for for, for supply chain and cost reasons, um, and for the high high interest costs. So it's not just regulation by itself. There's a whole bunch of things that affect their their desire and, and willingness to go ahead and build. So I think you know it's it's a red herring to say if we, if we regulate, we'll stop building. So I think we do have to seriously look at that particular policy for renters. Um, and then at the bottom of that heap, I mean, obviously, as these rents are going up, and one of the things I've documented in my research that you're probably aware of, Michael, is this this whole erosion of the bottom end of the rental market, where we're losing all these low rent units. Uh, and you know, we documented between 2011, 2021, you know, there were 550,000 fewer units renting for uh, $750 or less across the country. Uh, that's an income, or that's a rent level that's equivalent to a minimum wage income of about 30000 a year. So for those folks on low wage, particularly single single uh, wage earner uh, households, and for those folks trying to exit the shelter system, there's nowhere to exit to. Um, and so we got we ha somehow have to plug that gap. If we, if we want to end chronic homelessness, if we want to reduce homelessness, we have to create housing opportunities that are realistically affordable for folks in that situation, which means plugging that hole with some level of subsidy, building new permanent supportive housing with those with high acuity, uh, for those that it's merely, it's, it's more an economic issue, which for many it is, and we see, you'll see there's sort of a, you know, a significant number of folks that appear at shelters because of short-term uh, challenges, but they, they're able to get over it with some help. And, you know, and I think the growth of encampments, I mean, we used to think homelessness was more associated with uh, mental health and addiction challenges. Now, folks are in encampments simply because they can't find anything affordable to live. And so I think you know, we do have to think about how are we investing and, and what are the initiatives the federal government can actually afford to do, because obviously the cupboard's a bit bare and they need to sort of manage, uh, you know, the debt, higher debt payments that they're now making uh, and, and sort of have a, a reasonably balanced budget or a prospects of balance. Um, but at the same time, uh, be able to spend a little bit to, uh, to help these folks at the bottom end of the market. Well said, well said. And lots of different things to, to unpack there. I think also when you're talking about income, I think about 15% of, in the province of Ontario, people receive uh, Ontario Works or ODSP, which is $720 a month or $1,300 a month. Income supports that miss the mark huge right? when, when rents are averaging $2,000 in the GTA for a one-bedroom apartment. So there's a big gap. We need deeply affordable. And I'm glad you mentioned that too. I mean, I think it, it's build, 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 but the supply of deeply affordable housing that we already have, we are losing that at a way faster rate than we're, we're building. I've heard one to seven, one to 15, depending on what you loop in there, but it's definitely not going in the right, right direction. It's, it's, nationally right now, it's one in 11 uh, for that decade. Wow. And in some cities, it was as many as 20, 28 
uh, Montreal, Win- uh, London, uh, places like that. Wow. And, and the other piece of that too that I, I, I should have mentioned there, Michael, was that again, if we are trying to react quickly to these challenges, um, the Canada Housing Benefit, which was a really good initiative in the National Housing Strategy, but it was grossly underfunded. And for you know many of the folks, we know 88% of households in core housing need are there exclusively because of an affordability problem. They live in a house that is an appropriate number of bedrooms for their kids. It's in reasonable condition. They're just paying too much. We don't need to go and build them a house and, and, and ask them to wait four years. We can give them some help tomorrow uh, with a uh, an expanded Canada housing benefit. And it was interesting when we did the um, um, the, the one-time payment that, that was announced back last spring uh, that was funded through the tax system, 800,000 renter households applied for that one-time benefit. So there's clearly a big need out there. And I think the other evidence that's really important is that we've never moved the needle on core housing need. We've, we've seen increasing numbers of households in core housing need since that concept was invented or, or created in 1985. Um, yet in 2021, despite all of these issues we've talked about of rising prices, rising rents, for the first time ever, we saw a very, very significant decline in core housing need. And you scratch your head and say, well, why did that happen? Well, it happened for a very simple reason, because the census in 2021 asked people, what was your income in 2020? And in 2020, everybody was getting served benefits. Um, but it does prove, I mean, if, you know, if a core housing needs to decline by 277,000 households from 2016, the, the, the only reason that happened was because we augmented people's income in 2020. Yeah. And that really does tell us that working on the, you know, we can't have that kind of a reduction in core housing need by building on the supply side. And we certainly can't have it as quickly uh, as we did then. So we, we should learn from that experience and say, okay, we, if, if we actually really bolster the Canada housing benefit, uh, we could actually ha- much more quickly and significantly help folks who are facing high rent burdens. Absolutely. And I mean, even to build on that, I think if you look at food banks across the country, we're at their lowest usage rate of all time. When people can pay for their housing, they have the income, they don't need to go to food banks, right? And now at their highest ever, by far, where, where people are using food banks, uh, this is uh, uh, Daily Bread and North York Harvest, yeah. I believe, they're, who's hungry reports, $8 left over after paying for housing. Uh, Black and Indigenous, $6 left over. I haven't seen this year's. I'm assuming it's not getting better. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's something's got to give around the income piece and around the supports and, and what you're saying uh, for sure. We do have a fall economic statement coming up. The new Minister of Housing, Sean Fraser, has hinted at some new uh, measures and dollars coming forward. What are your hopes uh, in the next couple of months uh, from the government? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they need to, you know, they recognize they focus so far with the two big announcements, the Housing Accelerator Fund, which is essentially, you know, pr- you know, trying to give some funding to municipalities to speed up the supply process, which is very much about market supply. Um, although because the municipalities are going to be receiving those dollars, I think some of the municipalities will plow some of that money into their local affordable housing initiative. So it will augment the affordable piece a little bit. Um, and the other one was the reduction in GST, uh, which was intended to stimulate private sector guys to go ahead and build rentals that we're putting on ice because of interest rates being too high and costs being too high. Um, and, and, you know, the, the overall impact of that, I think, is actually less uh, on in terms of uh, the internal rate of return that they're going to generate after a decade uh, than many of them may think it is. Um, but 
to some extent, industry backed itself in a corner by promising, if you get rid of the GST, we'll build lots of rentals. <laughs> so uh, they now have to come and put their money where their mouth is. Uh, so good on that one. Uh, so, but those two things really were much more on the general supply side. I think government knows they need to balance that out with some of the things we just talked about and really having an impact around the affordability piece. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly what they're looking at, but I would hope that they might consider extend, renewing and extending for a period of time the RHI program, which was the one program in the national housing strategy, which didn't come in initially, but it came in during COVID, uh, you know, to build permanent supportive housing uh, for folks to help them get out of the shelter system. And, and they've done, you know, they did more than they thought they would in, in the initial year. And they did, you know, three, three rounds of it and probably producing four to 5,000 uh, units uh, over those three rounds. I, I think if we could go for another five years at 5,000 units, we would get to a point where we had enough permanent supportive housing to really make a dent in, in chronic homelessness. So I think if, if they could do that one, that would be a great initiative, but they do have to do it in a way that's much more collaborative uh, and collegial with working with the provinces, um, you know, because they clearly are the ones that need to bring the services and the wraparound supports that we need in those developments as well. It's okay to have the capital funding, but we need the support funding there as well. And I think they, you know, the way they introduced it the last time was, you know, announcing it and then after the fact, asking the provinces to come to the party with with the support dollars. I mean, that needs to be a, a conversation they need to be having with the, with the provincial health ministries and community services ahead of, of making an announcement and, and backing them into a corner. So I think, the, you know, the whole dynamic about that federal-provincial relationship needs to be improved. Um, uh, the other piece, I think, that's, and I've been doing a lot of work in this area recently, working with a number of foundations, uh, both community and private foundations, around the issue of um, the, you know, the erosion of the existing uh, lower rent stock. Um, and, you know, there's still two perspectives on this. You know, one is we can sort of regulate the REITs out of, out of existence, um, which I don't think would actually have as big an impact as some of the poverty advocates are suggesting because the REITs don't own that much of the stock, you know, 300,000 units out of 4.5 million, you know, it'll, it'll curtail some of it, but not 90% of it will still happen. Um, the other part is if you can't beat them, join them. Can we actually help nonprofits to behave like REITs in the sense of going and buying these lower rent assets, but buying them not for the purpose of generating yield for investors, but buying them for the purpose of preserving affordability. And so there are a group of foundations that I'm working with where we've put a proposal to the federal government that they're willing to invest a significant amount of social impact capital. And we're talking in the order of half a billion dollars um, and putting that on the table and saying to the federal government, look, will you come to the party and match us uh, and put up some federal money, uh, not necessarily cash. Uh, it can be in the form of access to low rate financing, which will extend the amount of money we can borrow against the rents that are collected on these moderate rent properties um, and also some public equity uh, to actually invest as an equity partner, uh, which from budgetary perspective is uh, has less impact on the deficit than, than grants and contributions. And we have had good good traction in discussions with the uh, the Minister of Finance's office and the, and the Prime Minister's office. Um, so we're hoping we may see something along those lines. It's certainly something I've been advocating for with CMHC for the last five years. It hasn't happened yet, but I think the fact that we've changed the, the conversation by bringing this significant amount of social impact capital to the table uh, that that could be in there as well. And I think the other one is, is, is hopefully they will consider looking at an expansion of the uh, Canada housing benefit um, and for the reasons we discussed previously. I love all of those. Um, <laughs> they're, they're all huge uh, ways we can have impact. I have to tell you, so at, at Blue Door right now, we have this tiny home, big piece of land. Um, 
and as a nonprofit housing, we want to put, we can put up 14 stack townhomes there deeply, but we want to do deeply affordable. That's our business long-term wraparound supports. Uh, it is really hard for an organization, even RHI, the, the big part around RHI for many was shovel ready to get yes. shovel ready in that class C budget or whatever they wanted. It was right. about, we, we'd have to put close to a million dollars of our own money with no guarantees that you're going to get RHI to move that forward. And now, uh, you know, when you look at the other programs, yeah, the interest rates, we just couldn't do it. We, we'd be offering market rental, which is not yeah. what we want to do. So yeah. it, we own the land. We're willing to put a million dollars of our own money, and it's still very, very difficult yeah. to access federal dollars. So I love uh, what you're talking about with those funds. We've been kind of clawing and scratching Blue Door and acquiring programs here and there from reaching home different places where we carry no debt, and it can be long-term deeply affordable, uh, semi-independent. And so it's been great. We're building that up. But yeah, they're, they're going to be in perpetuity, yep. affordable forever, and a land trust and those types of things. I know the city of Toronto uh, has done a great program that helps nonprofits yep. purchase uh, buildings to do that too. So this is this is all very promising stuff. Anything else that you're working on right now you want to share? You're always on to something. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the big one I'm working on is this this acquisition preservation fund uh, is uh, is a big piece. Um, I'm I, 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 speaking about sort of onerous, slow processing government. I've been talking to the, the reaching home folks for almost a year now about a, a contract update, some work that I had originally done for what was then HRSDC back in uh, in 2005, 2006 on proactive versus reactive responses to homelessness. And what is it really costing us not to help people who are homeless? So all of the costs that we're incurring in the emergency shelter system, in the um, folks in detox, uh, folks ending up in the hospital, community policing, all those kind of things. And in the analysis we did in 2005, we sort of said, you know, compared to building permanent supportive housing, it costs you three times as much to do nothing. And the kind of stuff that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about, you know, million dollar Murray uh, and you know, all the expenses that you occur in the system. So I'm, I'm hoping to get uh, get this contract finalized uh, this month or the early next month uh, to to basically update that that analysis for probably three or four cities across the country. Uh, so we have some, you know, again, you know, governments will react to evidence. And if there are cost savings to be had, um, then I think, uh, you know, it, it makes for a more compelling advocacy argument as to why government should invest in that area. So that'll be a sort of my main, main occupation for the next little while. And um, other than that, I'm just uh, having fun, you know, sort of kicking ideas around and sort of trying to promote some of these uh, these approaches uh, with, and, and also teaching, uh, teaching both at Carlton and McMaster. Uh, so uh, trying to create the next generation of us so there's somebody else to carry the torch when, uh, when we move on there, Michael. <laughs> Meet me sooner than you. <laughs> no, hey, listen, I am so, it's been so worth the wait to have you on and and i'm so glad you're teaching and passing that on because i mean it, uh, everything you've talked about today how we got there what we need to do moving forward some of the pieces in there it's just information that everyone in the sector all canadians uh should know and be interested in and i think more and more people are um it should be interesting few months as we move forward because we know our, our current federal government uh is in the last year of uh agreement with NDP, we could be looking at a election. And if, um, well, we will be looking at, and, and maybe sooner rather than later. And 
if we don't move the the needle on housing, that could also sway the election uh, quite a bit. So so all of this matters. Uh, and we're so fortunate, Steve, to have you influencing and having those conversations, providing the research. I love what you said there at the end. Is if you could tell government, not only are you you know saving lives, you're saving dollars. You're doing the economically smart thing by investing in housing and doing this. We know that to be true, but to be able to prove it will be uh, another amazing thing to help uh, push the argument forward. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. uh, And we'll see you next time on the way home. Thanks, Michael. Take care. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.